So welcome to CRU's latest sustainability podcast with your host, me, Charlie Durant. For the next 15 minutes, we will be exploring one of the big sustainability questions of the day. Now, this episode, we're going to be looking at electric vehicle markets and examining, are we at an inflection point? I'd also like to get some answers from my panelists about if the battery metal sector is ready and what could derail this EV revolution. Joining me today, I have Arthur Wang from CRU's economics team in Sydney, Harry Fisher, who is head of our cobalt analysis, and joining me in London, James Jerry, who is leading our research into lithium markets. So I think before we delve deeper into EVs, it would be great to get some context on where the automotive market is now. So Arthur, how have automotive markets performed in 2021? And when do you think they're going to fully recover from COVID? Thanks, Charlie. So in our early forecast this year, we were still expecting the auto sector to recover from the pandemic due to pent up demand. However, the, the chip shortage we already know kicked in, which I would describe as a combination of different events with the snowball effect of the pandemic being the primary reason. So the production disruptions caused by the chip shortage have worsened, I would say, sequentially as 2021 progressed. Q2's figure were bad and Q3's figure were even worse. Not only for production and inventories, but also for sales due to order delays from automakers. Therefore, in our latest forecast, we have made pronounced downgrade to our near-term 21-22 light vehicle production outlook, basically for all major regions. So our central view is that production will be pushed to 2022 and post-COVID recovery will start to kick in gradually from next year. And Arthur, you mentioned there the um, chip shortage. When when do you start thinking that's going to begin to soften or is that going to be, be hitting us for a while longer? Well, there are still no solid evidence proving that the chip crisis is going to end soon yet. But we already seen some soft evidence suggesting the situation may have started to improve. As you may already know, now the chip shortage is mainly due to the back-end semiconductor packaging and testing supply part of, part of supply chain. And uh, for the second half of the year, the disruption is, is more related to this kind of issue. But because of the COVID breakdowns and the uh, associated lockdowns and consequent labor force shortage in Southeast Asia. So we have seen the COVID new cases pass its peak in this region since the end of August and early September, which is a good thing. So I would say the lifted lockdown measures may help to restore chip supply chain a little bit. And uh, we have also seen the uh, used car price in U.S., past its peak in end of July, early August, which may also act as a proxy, showing that the chip situation is improving. I mean, in any case, most of the automakers already started to adapt their strategies when producing cars. For instance, some may already trim down the technology used in cars to reduce the number of chips per car, and some are offering retrofit service for those customers who are willing to take delivery of cars without certain chips installed. I mean, all in all, the, the above factors could all help to alleviate the chip shortage impact. So that's really interesting, Arthur. So just, just to correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is markets have been weak through a 
variety of different regions, be it COVID, be it chip shortage. But the market is beginning to take some actions to deal with that. Um, and reducing chips in vehicles seems to be one of those actions. Now, Harry, to me, it sounds like that probably isn't going to be an option for many of the high-tech EVs that we see on the market. So how how is this this kind of chip shortage affected EV markets? So, so similarly to, to combustion engines, we have we have also seen some kind of non-critical chips be removed, um, and and some models start to be delivered without without as many chips as before, and and as Arthur said, an offer to to retrofit those chips at a later date. Um, but in general, the EV market has has not been impacted in any way really, um, particularly in com- compared to combustion engines. Um, we've we haven't seen any real impact on production and, and definitely not on, on the sales on the sales numbers. Um, and really there's there's a few different reasons for that. Um, the first is that EVs are still quite a relatively small proportion of the total fleet size of, of most of the major OEMs. So it's quite easy to kind of protect and, and shield that part of their supply chain. Um, there's also some kind of policy pressure such as in the EU from from emissions targets for their total fleet. Um, and obviously, with with lower um, combustion engine production, um, if they maintain their their EV production, then that really helps with their overall emissions intensity. Um, and also, kind of from a shareholder perspective, electric vehicle and and the EV strategy is becoming increasingly important for for the car producers. Um, and as a result, they need to be very careful um, to kind of not be seen. Um, as diverging from from the strategy that's that's already been announced. Um, so overall, we we haven't incorporated any changes to our EV demand or, or sales forecasts this year, and 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 we don't see it having an impact going forwards. That's really interesting. Um, it was interesting what you said there about uh, prioritization of EVs and to some extent them being the future. Um, James, question for you. I find it very hard to think about electric vehicles without thinking about China. Um, so what feedback are we getting from our China offices on how how the EV market is is running in China? Yeah, the, the electric vehicle market in China this year has, has outperformed all expectations, really. We look back at the start of the year, we were expecting about 2 million sales of new energy vehicles um, this year. Now, we're basically already at that level. We've actually exceeded that level already. Um, the past couple of months, we've seen record levels of sales, well over 300,000 units a month. So we're on track probably for about over 3 million units this year, um, which again, you know, at the start of the year, this was kind of unheard of really. Um, there's a couple of reasons why that's uh, why that's happened. There's an increased availability of cheap cheaper affordable models uh, in the country. For example, the Hongguang Mini is is the most popular vehicle so far this year. It's a tiny car <clears throat> with a tiny battery and it's actually been outselling Tesla so far this year. Now the reason that it's been uh, so popular is in, in cities with abundant infrastructure um, of, of charging points, you know, range is less of an issue. So people are happy to have these cars and be able to charge them where range range doesn't matter quite as much. Having said that, we are seeing a lot of technological developments in uh, these these sort of typically lower range batteries of LFP chemistries. We've seen the range ever, ever improving. So 
that's really the reason why it's cheap. These cheaper models um, are really driving uh, sales there. And it also um, sort of offsets the, the slight decline in subsidies that we've been seeing in China this year as well. So that's that's been the real driving force there. And in one sentence, um, could you just quickly sum up the difference between an NMC and an LFP for any listeners who aren't aware of what the difference is? Sure. So that relates to battery chemistry. So LFP is lithium ion phosphate, NMC, um, nickel, manganese, cobalt. Um, so NMC is nickel, nickel containing, and that's for improved range and, and performance. LFP with no nickel in um, and, and typically lower range. But as I said, yeah, we're seeing technological developments where LFP is, is approaching parity with some of the, the lower nickel uh, containing cathodes. And LFP generally cheaper? Yes, correct. Right, cool. Good. It's always a nice number of uh, um, abbreviations in, in EV <laughs> or electric vehicle markets. So I think it's good to establish them. So as you said, the Chinese market is seeing pretty rapid growth. Um, so Harry, over to you. Is this an inflection point or is this just uh, one year of, of, of strong growth? What do you think going forward? So um, just going back to what Arthur said at the beginning, the, the EV sector has kind of really bucked the trend compared to the, the broader auto market. Um, and then throughout the, the, the pandemic, if anything, has been, been a very, very good thing for, for the EV transition. Um, a, a big part of that is we saw very generous subsidies in in Europe, for for example, and that's meant we've got very strong um, sales in Europe, um, and we've also seen a turnaround um, in the US with some positive um, policy changes um, from the Biden administration. So in 2020, um, sales grew about 37% year on year to about 3.3 million units, but this year they'll be even stronger. Um, they'll grow about 85% year on year and are likely to exceed 6 million units of sales this year. Um, importantly, now we're, we're seeing a drive from, from China, as, as James said, from, from Europe and from North America. So we've got all of the major automotive markets really driving sales growth. Um, and, and so in answer to your question, th this period, I think, is a turning point for EVs. Um, and and we'll see continued strong growth um, in the midterm. From from the kind of mid 2020s, we expect that electric vehicles will reach cost parity with combustion engines, and and as a result, we'll start to see an acceleration even even more than we are now um, of demand for EVs. Um, so electric vehicle penetrations are around seven percent this year, and we expect it to rise to about fifteen percent by the mid 2020s. So a kind of follow-up question to both you, Harry, and to, to to you, James, is so COP26 obviously getting a lot of attention this year. Um, I suppose it's the multi-billion dollar question is, are there going to need to be more subsidies? Do we need to be doing more to accelerate that, um, that penetration rate? Or is it going to be a function of, of technology? I think so, it's... Uh, yeah, sorry, you go, James. James. Okay, I, I think it's probably um, there. There will need to be an element of of policy in in this decision making as well um, to actually enforce from top down the the adoption of electric vehicles. But like Harry said, what we're seeing, OEMs are really committing and and putting a lot of money into into the development of EVs, and they've got these sales targets by 
2030, 2035, where a certain proportion of their sales be purely electric, so battery electric vehicles. So it's you do need that top-down um, sort of policy, but I think it's also now down to the OEMs to actually make sure that you know they commit to these plans um, and and actually increase the availability of of models and actually can produce on a on a sort of uh, mass production scale for these vehicles. And Harry, over to you. Any anything you'd want to add, or anything you disagree with there? No, I agree. I agree. I think it, it's we're we're starting to see big movements from from the OEMs, um, and I think that's really important to improve mod availability um, and, and and choice um, for for a wide range of consumers in different markets with different preferences. Um, but I think more generally, tra- the transport sector is is a critical part of of decarbonisation targets. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens at the COP meetings and around that and around kind of any shifting targets. Um, and but yeah, it's it's a very important thing to see. And, and we've seen we've seen that subsidies have been critical um, for uptake um, in in China and and more recently in Europe. And then another word that I hear a lot um, when when I've been covering uh, battery metals markets is gigafactories. Now. To the uninitiated, um, Harry, what is a gigafactory and do OEMs have enough of them? Good, yeah, good, good question. So it, it's it's kind of a it's a it's a Tesla word that's kind of being taken up by the market and, and it refers to kind of gigawatt hours of, of capacity of, of battery production. Um, and and we've we've really seen some some big movements in gigafactory plans in the last 12 18 months from from a number of the OEMs as as James said many of them now have got um have got plans to either partially or entirely phase out combustion engine um production and or sales um in in the next kind of 5 10 15 years um so and to enable them to to get that mass production of electric vehicles, they're going to need the, the major OEMs are going to need in-house um, battery production to to support those electric vehicles. Um, typically, you ne- ideally you need battery production close to EV assembly because they're they're very heavy things. Um, so it, it's good for that all to be kind of local or, or regional. Um, and, and as I said, we, we've we have seen a lot of of announcements recently. So, for example, in the last few weeks, we've seen Ford invest about um, 11 billion US um, with SK Innovation for for free battery plants and a, and a new EV plant in the US. Um, and we're seeing we're seeing similar um, similar investments from from lots of the other OEMs, particularly in, in Europe and North America. I, I think the so it's necessary for for the EV numbers that we're talking out and uh, we're talking about and to maintain the the rate of the transition. Um, but I, the the main question for me lies in not the batteries, but the the stuff going into the batteries, and and that's really the battery raw materials. Um, as as we mentioned, that's primarily lithium, um, cobalt, and nickel are the, are the kind of the main ones to consider. And that's both from the mining angle and the the chemical refining angle. There's not a huge amount of of capacity in in Europe and North America um, for those those raw materials. Um, th- those markets are very 
reliant on mostly on China, but Asia as a whole, including South Korea and Japan. Um, so I think one one thing to keep an eye on is is the regionalization of these markets um, and and how we start to see more raw material supply in Europe and North America to support those gigafactory plans. So Harry, I think you've, you've touched on an area that I wanted to round off today's conversation talking about. Um, so over to you, James. I think on in, in terms of battery metals themselves, <clears throat> what are the key risks? Are there enough of them? Uh, and are we in the re- area of a, a, a real amount of volatility in these markets? Well, what are we thinking for lithium? Uh, in short answer, yeah, yeah. You know, the 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 talk at the moment is about will there be enough sort of lithium available to to meet this these expectations of rising demand. Obviously, you know what we've seen in the market previously. A lot of supply came on very quickly a couple of years ago. It was too much too quickly. Prices crashed. Some supply was turned off, um, and now obviously with demand coming back and expectations for demand going further forward, everyone is is looking at investing in lithium now. Our view is that out to 2025, you know, brownfield supply is going to form a pretty much most of the supply growth that we're expecting over the next few years. When I say brownfield supply, I mean mine restarts, some of the idle capacity from a couple of years ago, expansion plans put, being put in place by some of the incumbent producers, and also increased capacity utilization at a lot of the spodumene mines in Australia. Beyond that, that's when you need that greenfield investment to uh, cycle to come in. So that has already started in earnest, really. We've seen a lot of money being being um, invested into numerous projects around the world, really. Um, so that investment is going to be needed to prevent uh, deficits arising from the mid-2020s onwards when, when demand, which is already accelerating very quickly, could well kick on even more. Um, so so that's really important in lithium. Um, if, you, if you then go from the mine mine stage one down to the refining stage you know it's the carbonate versus hydroxide split carbonate is typically used in lfp like we spoke about earlier whereas hydroxide is used more in the nmc based chemistries Mm -hmm. and very clearly there's a there's going to be a market for both going forward so it's making sure that there's enough capacity for both okay and harry from from the cobalt side how what's the risks you're thinking from this this change in iev view or so, so similarly to James, given given the the acceleration of demand over the mid to long term, we will st- we will need to see um, new supply investment um, to support that that demand growth. Um, I think the one of the the bigger risks for cobalt, which is different to lithium, is is on the is on the demand side though, and, and specifically on the technology, um, for various reasons from from ethical supply chains, cost. Um, and, and other issues, cobalt is increasingly trying to be removed from from battery chemistries. Um, but it it's very critical for the overall stability of the battery. It's it typically stops it overheating, um, and 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 can cause fires in in some of the higher nickel NMC chemistries that where where cobalt is is a lower proportion. Um, so it's that's kind of a risk to the the cobalt outlook. Um, is is if there's any major changes in technology that that impacts the intensity of cobalt in those batteries. But at the moment, we're seeing still seeing a very healthy picture um, because of the importance of of cobalt for for the stability. 
Thanks, Harry, and thanks, James, on, on that. So if you'd like to learn more about CRU's battery metal services, please do contact uh, myself, Harry or James, and we're more than happy to talk you through any aspect of them. So I'm going to wrap up today now. I think what I've learned is that EV markets are hot and battery metals are set for a period of huge demand growth. There's some challenges in terms of their supply chains, but from what I've heard, I also think if we're going to see penetration rates exceed our base case, we're going to need to see more support and subsidies, announcements from COP26, as well as further investments from OEMs. If the kind of spectacular growth that we're seeing at the moment continue into the long term. So I'd like to thank all my panelists today. And yeah, it's been a really interesting discussion. Please join us next time where we will be tackling yet another sustainability issue.